0: What had like been done wrong,
1: and I got mad—mad mad enough to stand up for myself and do something about it. And as we were going through the process, I realized that I wasn't the only one that this was happening to.
2: And it became a, a fight and a journey for not only myself but thousands of others. Mad enough to do something about it that was the voice of amy stevens the trans woman from michigan who was fired from her job at a local funeral home and took her employment discrimination case all the way to the u.s supreme court stevens was speaking with me in that clip from washington dc in october of last year she was in washington for the oral arguments in her case now because of her bravery and her fight for justice No American can be fired or be discriminated against by employers for being LGBTQ. That is the result of yesterday's historic 6-3 U.S. Supreme Court decision authored by conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch. Unfortunately, Amy Stevens didn't live to see the outcome of this case or a world where all LGBTQ Americans can participate in the workforce and be protected under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. She died a month ago from complications related to kidney failure at the age of 59. But her impact will be felt in perpetuity. And it will serve as a model for how one person can truly change the lives of millions of people for the better. That is where we begin the conversation today with Yesterday's historic ruling by the U.S. Supreme Court, and here to talk more about the case, its implications, and the plaintiff in this case was Jay Kaplan, ACLU of Michigan's LGBT project staff attorney. Jay, welcome back to Detroit today. Thank you,
0: thank you, Stephen. It's great to be here.
2: Yes, it's great to to hear from you. First. Let's talk a bit about Amy Stevens and her journey and what she has meant to this incredible fight for justice.
0: Yes, well, as you said, Stephen, it was a historic decision, uh, much cause to celebrate, but very bittersweet by the fact that Amy didn't live to, to be able to read that opinion. I spoke with Amy about two weeks before she passed away. And I know that was one of her greatest wishes, to be able to live long enough to actually read the opinion. Um, But her involvement in this case was so meaningful to her. She did this not just to redress a wrong that was done to herself, as she mentioned in the interview with you, but she really wanted to make a difference in the lives of other transgender people. And I really believe that, um, that Amy found a second purpose in her life towards the end of her life, by being the face of this case by having the bravery and courage to share her story in order to make a better life for so life for so many other people. Uh, her job meant so much to her as a funeral director, as an embalmer. She, she felt that it was her mission to try to make things, uh, to help families in their greatest time of need while they're grieving the loss of a loved one. And when that was taken away from her, it was devastating, not only economically, but also emotionally for her. And I, I, I really want to believe that she found kind of a second calling, uh, by being the face of this case. And she took it very seriously, her responsibility. And despite all the setbacks that she had with her health, she always wanted to be available to do the interview, to do the presentation, to talk about this case and to talk about this cause. And I know she would have been so happy with this decision. And she always said, if it was not a, a favorable outcome that we, we just keep on fighting. Hmm.
2: So she was determined. Yeah. So I'm wondering what your reaction is to yesterday's ruling. I am one of the people who was caught quite by surprise. Uh, I remember when this case started and uh, when it was winding its way through federal courts, I put the odds of it succeeding at pretty low, uh, just because I know what the federal judiciary uh, looks like these days, and and how it treats discrimination cases in particular, how hard it is to win those cases. Uh, I, I felt a little better after oral arguments last fall. I, I I really felt like Chief Justice Roberts seemed maybe open to the idea that the Civil Rights Act could could be interpreted to to protect LGBTQ uh, Americans, but I was still really hesitant to to feel like uh, there was a strong chance that that you could win. But then yesterday comes, and not only is Chief Justice Roberts in the majority, but Neil Gorsuch, uh, a much more conservative justice, uh, is not just in the majority, but the author of the opinion. I, I wonder if you were caught as much surprise by surprise as I was
0: i think I think I share that, and many on the legal team for for amy 's case shared that surprise. This was not a case that we wanted to go to the United States Supreme Court mm-hmm. because we acknowledge, along with many other people, that the court has become much more conservative as a result of president trump 's two appointments to the Supreme Court, um, but actually, the argument that we put before the court. Is a conservative one. It's focusing on text. Mm-hmm. What does what does sex mean in terms of discrimination because of sex? And you know, some of us were heartened when Justice Gorsuch during the oral a- arguments said, "Well, yeah, that does seem to to make some sense." He also made a comment that he was concerned about what might be the social implication right. of a, of a decision. Uh, but no, I mean. The idea that uh, it was a 6-3 decision and that two conservative justices joined in, uh, you know, unlike the marriage equality decision, which was a pretty much divided court 5-4, to four, this was pretty emphatic about the idea that when you discriminate against somebody because of their sexual orientation yeah. or their gender identity, it is because of sex. It's because of the sex that was assigned to them at birth that they're not conforming with maybe the employ- employer's viewpoint of how they should look how they should act, who they should love, and uh, it's just a very satisfying result because for people who live in 29 states, like the state of Michigan, which does not have explicit recognition of sexual orientation and gender identity, now LGBT people in those states have a remedy when they've been discriminated against in their employment.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I also was thinking yesterday after this ruling came down about a conversation that you and I had after the marriage ruling about how hard the work ahead was going to be to get Uh, courts or or Congress to be able to eliminate discrimination against the LGBTQ community in other areas, uh, including employment. And if I think back to that conversation, I don't think either of us thought that the window of time between the marriage ruling and something like this would be as short as it turns out to have been. This is another huge step forward following this incredible step forward with the mayor's ruling. And, and I, I guess history kind of suggests to us that things don't always happen that way, that, that these fights uh, are, are long and arduous, uh, riddled with setbacks and, and some victories. Here, you guys are kind of racking up the victories uh, in, in, a, in a fashion that, that seems uh, uh, remarkable to me.
0: Well, it, it, it was a pretty remarkable development, and I think part of that was as a result of the Trump administration reversing many of the Obama era policies regarding LGBT rights, which interpreted uh, sex discrimination prohibitions as covering LGBT people. Uh, the Trump administration is pretty much, you know, just as what we saw on Friday when they issued a new rule saying that transgender people are not protected uh, under the Affordable Care Act from discrimination in accessing health care and health insurance coverage. Uh, so, it, so it does seem like a tremendous progress, but we still have a long way to go. Yesterday's decision dealt with the issue of employment. But we still have public accommodations and housing and education where many LGBT people face discrimination, and that's why our work is not done. Mm-hmm. We need to amend our state civil rights law to ex- have the explicit mention of sexual orientation and gender identity so we don't have to leave it up to court interpretations mm-hmm. or, uh, depending on which you know administration is in office, how they choose to interpret sex. We need to pass the Equality Act, which is a federal civil rights uh, bill that would protect LGBT people in the areas of public accommodation, education, housing and employment.
2: Yeah. Uh, My guest is Jay Kaplan. Uh, He is the project staff LGBT project staff attorney for the ACLU of Michigan. We're talking about yesterday's really remarkable U.S. Supreme Court ruling uh, that says that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 does protect LGBTQ Americans against employment discrimination. It protects them on the basis of uh, that being sex discrimination, equivalent to Uh, discrimination against men and women in the workplace uh, for their uh, sexual identities. Um, As always, we want to hear from you about how you are reacting to this news. Uh, What did you think when the U.S. Supreme Court announced this decision yesterday? We especially want to hear from you if you're a member of the LGBTQ community, and especially if you think you'll be directly affected by this decision. What does this mean For you. As always, the number here on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. Uh, You can always uh, go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into. The conversation, uh, Jay. Uh, before before I reset, there we were just talking. You were just talking about this idea of the work ahead. Uh, I wonder if you can expand a little on uh, the ways in which this does change lots of things, of course, for people uh, who face discrimination in the workplace, but but falls short in other ways. And in particular, how it relates to uh, the fight that we've been having in the state about uh civil rights protections that are offered uh, here in in the state of Michigan.
0: Yes, well, for more than two decades legislation has been introduced that would amend Elliot Larson that's our state civil rights law right. to explicitly include sexual orientation and gender identity. There's legislation before our, our 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 state government at this point in time, but both the House leadership and the Senate leadership refused to move the bill forward, and uh, they could make that change today. It, 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 it is something that's doable because we want to, to make sure that all the other areas, in addition to employment, that LGBT people have protections. But this decision, it helps us in some ways because uh, two years ago, our Michigan Civil Rights Commission issued an interpretive statement which is not a court decision but it's a they interpret our state civil rights law as protecting lgbt people under the category of sex and this just bolsters that interpretation and i think we can also take the 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 analysis that the supreme court used yesterday to try to bring other challenges in court, arguing that LGBT people are protected against discrimination in other contexts mm-hmm. as well. But the bottom line is we need to have it written in statutes. So there's no question, and we're not subject to to a particular judicial interpretation. I, I also might add that another in terms of the uh, challenge to LGBT rights is the attempt to use a religious belief to justify discrimination against LGBT people, even in non-religious activities, um, and we're going to be seeing we're, we're seeing these challenges in court. And next year, the United States Supreme Court will be looking at a case called Fulton versus the City of Philadelphia, which will be looking at whether or not um, a city that has provides a contract with a faith-based foster care agency. If that uh, foster care agency can refuse to work with LGBT people citing religious beliefs, hmm. um, that's that's a that's a real serious threat to to LGBT equality. In that we've never allowed a religious belief being used as a license to discriminate, and we're seeing litigation around the country making that very same argument.
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, do you? Um, when we're thinking about the ways in which the LGBTq community faces discrimination, of course, employment is just one of the the areas of life where where that's a challenge. uh do you think that other areas are more more egregious, I guess uh in terms of the kinds of discrimination that we see i I'm thinking about housing in particular. Uh, th- that I know is, is is a real issue I mean how 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 distinct would uh, you say the employment ruling is from some of these other things that have have just as big an effect if not a bigger effect on, on people's lives
0: yeah well I, w- I would say that LGBT people face equal opportunity discrimination in many areas certainly in the area of housing particularly transgender people majority of the transgender population experience homelessness at some time in their lifetime due to that discrimination. And uh, the Trump administration is getting ready to uh, unveil a rule regarding homeless shelters that would allow um, uh, the shelters to turn away transgender people uh, based on either religious beliefs or if they're, 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 the sex assigned at birth it doesn't, doesn't fit in terms of uh, who's being housed in the homeless shelter. The area of public accommodations, once again, particularly, transgender people being turned away from, from medical care, being denied access to certain medical procedures that might uh, that allow them to transition to to, to their uh, their gender identity and allow them to be their authentic self, a great deal of health insurance discrimination, uh, even for medically necessary services. So there's a whole panoply of discrimination that, that the community faces in addition to employment. Yeah.
2: Uh, Again, 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones to join the conversation. Let's go to Vernon in Auburn Hills. Vernon, welcome to the show. Uh,
3: Interesting show as normal. And uh, one uh, point I'd like to make before I make my statement is that lady that takes the screens the calls is brilliant. She's an interesting conversation. I don't know who she is, but whoever she is, she makes a cut on my payroll. She's a good one.
2: That is uh, Anna Seisling, one of our producers well, here. On she the
3: is today. nothing short of brilliant. But getting back to it, uh, as far as the Supreme Court's decision on the uh, of gay rights issue, uh, we're, we're kind of focusing or backpedaling on Trump. And during Obama, the uh, voting rights was gutted. The affirmative <clears throat> affirmative action was removed. I think it's just a chi- uh, sign of the times. I, I, I think finger pointing isn't the issue. I, I think freedom freedom is being redefined uh, almost on a daily basis. If you look at what's going on in Seattle, and it's it just uh, we're tearing down statues of Christopher Columbus, and I mean things are just. I don't know if they're going off the rails, but things are changing, and I think whether we accept it or not, and 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 I. I your guest has a legitimate gripe uh, as to what's going on, and I, I think uh, black people have a legitimate gripe as to the voting rights and the affirmative action thing that went on uh, uh, under the uh, uh, Obama administration. So it's just it's just reality, and sometimes reality can be uh, incredibly cruel.
2: Hmm. Uh, Vernon, I really appreciate the call and and the comments, uh, uh, Jay Kaplan. I, I think. One of the things that I'm thinking of based on Vernon's call is this question of a turning point, I suppose. And and I think that's a very dangerous way maybe to think about things because things do go forward and back and, and swing back and forth. And as Vernon pointed out, we did see the court uh, really got the VRA section Five of the VRA uh, um, while President Obama was in office. Uh, the affirmative action rulings, of course, were actually during George W. Bush's time in, in the White House. But, but do you think that, that this ruling marks a different, a, you know, a different way of approaching these questions? Now, this is a very specific question about the applicability of the Civil Rights Act to this community, but it again, it is a, a major step forward. I wonder what what you think of what Vernon's interpretation is here.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I think this case in particular, you you see that uh, uh, maybe political ideology was not something that necessarily drove the ultimate decision, the majority decision here. It was that uh, you have certain justices who might be who might be viewed as being conservative the way they interpret law, and even through that conservative interpretation they were able to come to this result. So I think it's a very positive sign because we see that the court can work, and it can work despite maybe the ideologies of the different justices. But I, you know, the court has a number of controversial cases uh, that they will be issuing opinions in the next couple of weeks about DACA, about uh, abortion, Mm -hmm. about uh, uh, president having to to to, uh, to 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 you know supply his his tax returns and so we have to wait and see uh this could be you know this could just be a blip on the radar that we you know, ultimately a good and just outcome uh, in comparison to some of those other decisions. Um, But, you know, I like to believe that this was a demonstration how our our system of government in terms of the checks and balances, how the role that the court plays, that it really can work to do the right and the just thing.
2: Okay, Jay Kaplan, LGBT Project Staff Attorney for the ACLU of Michigan. Always great to have you with us. Thanks for being here today. Thanks
0: so much, Stephen. Yeah.
2: All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break and when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with Liliana Reyes, a trans woman of color here in Detroit who's fighting for justice and resources for LGBTQ youth. We'll get her reaction to the Supreme Court ruling and talk about her work as the program director at the Ruth Ellis Center and as director of the group Trans Sisters of Color. Stay with us and stay with us on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
4: WDET prides itself in sharing news straight up and without a PR spin. Well, here's the news about us. WDET needs to raise $2 million more before September 30th to keep our staff and quality programming intact. In order to keep our employees working safely, our costs have gone up. Because gathering safely was not an option, all of our events have been canceled. $400,000 in sponsorship revenue dried up as well. And we know many of you are hurting because membership support is down too. We understand. But if you are one of the folks who listens and never gives and can, it's time to give. Support the station you love and give now at WDET.org.
2: Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about yesterday's U.S. Supreme Court ruling that employment discrimination based on someone's gender identity or sexual orientation violates the Civil Rights Act of 1964. We now want to hear from someone who says as a young Mexican-American trans woman of color, she couldn't even envision herself participating in the workforce because she never saw anyone like herself in a job. Liliana Reyes now spends her time fighting for equal rights and resources for LGBTQ youth as program director at the Ruth Ellis Center, which provides trauma-informed services for LGBTQ youth and young adults of color. She's also the director of Trans Sisters of Color here in Detroit. Liliana Reyes, welcome to Detroit Today.
1: Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen.
2: Yes, it's great to have you here. So uh, let's start with this. Give us your reaction to the Supreme Court decision yesterday. Big surprise for many people, mm-hmm. me and myself included. Uh, what, was your, what was your take?
1: I cried. Um, and I cried because, it, I mean, this is a monumental day for LGBT people. Um, it's a monumental day for folks who are gonna be using this precedence to change other hopefully civil rights laws, both nationally um, and at the state level. And it's it's just really beautiful. And also, uh, a couple of weeks ago, Amy Stevens, the uh, the person, one of the folks who brought lawsuit, um, passed away. And so my agency uh, worked with her. My agency uplifted her and her wife Donna. And so this this is just really bittersweet because I know that she wanted to to be here for this, and she created a legacy that we're all gonna live better from and it was just a really sad emotional good day
2: um talk about what this means for you as a trans woman of color i think one of the things that gets lost sometimes in the discussion about lgbtq rights and advocacy is that as in all things american uh Things look different if you are a person of color than if mm-hmm. you are not, and and this issue in particular, uh, I think is is one of those things that really stands out.
1: Yeah. So I transitioned at seventeen. Um, I grew up in Saginaw, so it was a very racialized place, very huge Mexican immigrant population. Um, and so I, when I was coming up, I always knew it was difficult as a Latina, as a Mexican woman, to, to navigate this world, so I was a farm town, most of my family were migrant workers and they were treated as such often. And so I saw racism first and foremost from uh, being a child. So then as I grew and I became me, I realized that it was just kind of adding to the mix of, of injustice and discrimination but in a different level because even amongst lgbt i mean even amongst latino people at the time i didn't see a whole lot of trans people i saw uh, some lesbians and maybe some gay men but i didn't see any trans people and i felt like i didn't even know what a trans person was until i reached 16 or 17. um and that's really interesting because throughout my whole life i knew who i was but i didn't understand what that meant and so once you kind of figure out like we all do who we are, then we figure out, when we start to dream and and think about the future. And when I did that, people can say, women can say, they can look at people who are women engineers and astronauts and physicians and You can't really do that with a lot of trans people, especially trans people that transitioned in their youth, Um, because it's a different type of hardship when you transition most of your life as a trans person, having very little resources. And so when I was thinking about what I wanted to become, I didn't know, because I didn't even see a nurse. I didn't even see a gas station attendant that was a trans person. And so the thought to me that they were invisible was scary, because I'm like, so what are they doing? And... Then when I I really got in college and they started talking about firing people because of being LGBT, and I almost got fired because someone was uncomfortable with me cleaning a woman's bathroom when it was closed, and I didn't understand that. So so I started to feel like I understand why we're invisible or why we're doing black market work. And so this particular decision allows little – young trans people, allows young people who may not see the gender binary to dream a little bit, Mm. to see people in their space. And that's been my life's work, to create space for trans people, specifically trans women of color, in employment workplaces so that other little girls and boys can dream.
2: Yeah. Uh, And and you do that work, of course, through the Ruth Ellis Center and Mm -hmm. Trans Sisters of Color. Talk about those two two organizations and, and what they do.
1: Yeah, so the Ruth Ellis Center is a namesake for one of the oldest living lesbians in the country, Ruth Ellis. She uh, came to Detroit really long, long time ago. It was one of the first um, women, especially Black women, to own a printing press in Detroit. And in the time in the early 1900s when there wasn't any safe place, her and her partner in the city of, or in Highland Park, city Detroit area, towards the north end, created a space that young people can come and just be just have funds where they didn't have to figure out and be scared well who's going to come through the door next because it was illegal to be lgbt back in the day if people don't remember that um so when that was happening it took a long time but when detroit figured out that there were a lot of black and brown people young lgbt people who had nowhere to go because historically Black and brown families have been kicking out their LGBT young people for decades. So they didn't have anywhere to go. They didn't have any stable housing. They didn't have any stable employment. They had almost nothing. They created a tight-knit community with very little resources. And so Ruth Ellis said that the folks who wanted to start Ruth Ellis wanted to create a place for young LGBT people, and they wanted to name it after one of the first people in Detroit to do that, and that's the Ruth Ellis. That's Ruth Ellis, so it mm-hmm. became the Ruth Ellis Center. And so our agency has went from us one small drop-in on Six Mile to a campus in Detroit and Highland Park, working with Henry Ford Health Systems to provide basic health care needs, trans inclusion needs as well, um, working with their mental health, We uh, work with folks who are in the foster care system. Uh, I run the drop-in center specifically. So the drop-in centers where people come and just are. They get food boxes. They get showers. They can get clothes. They get to feel like they're part of family. And for some of the people that we work with, actually a lot of them, we are their only family. And I'm not just saying that. When they have nowhere to go, when folks need to get in contact with them, they come to our agency because they don't have anywhere else. And so we really are a guiding light for folks in the Detroit Metro area, As the Ruth Ellis Center. Mm-hmm. Trans Sisters of Color Project started um, about five or six years ago for a few reasons. One, because there was a lot of police brutality in the Detroit area for trans women of color. There was a, a, trans, a black trans woman that was murdered because a Madison Heights police officer tipped off a drug dealer of where this person was and he killed her. Mm-hmm. And they were they were charged, um, Madison Heights was at least held liable and had to pay a big lump sum of money. And that officer was kindly let go and last I heard is working in Warren. And so those type of, when we talk about Black Lives Matter, even before BLM had created um, a, a, in the hashtag that they are now anyway, that there were black trans women that were getting murdered and brutalized by police. And no one said anything. There was no protest. There was no riots. There was no social media. There was nothing. And this wasn't the first case. And so our organization started somewhat with that also with other agencies, not doing work with trans people, other LGBT agencies refusing to incorporate trans bodies. So we created an organization where we give out anywhere between 20 and $50,000 a year, to trans women of color through emergency assistance in or Mm. from Detroit. Mm. We employ seven trans women that get a monthly stipend. Uh, We have retreats every quarter for the girls, and almost everyone in our agency has a full-time position in a social justice organization in Detroit.
2: Wow. Um, Can you talk about the effects of this ruling on not just your life, but the, the lives of the other uh, people that you work with and work on on behalf of the practical uh, the practical ends of it I mean, one of the things that I think it's difficult for people sometimes to understand is that this is life changing stuff mm-hmm. that 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 when you change the law, when you change the reach of protections of the law, people get to live differently, yes.
1: They, they get to not live in fear as much. And so what people don't understand is there are a lot of people, especially in the state of Michigan, we're just talking about Michigan right now. There are a lot of people in the state of Michigan that go to work every day, do their work, and they think as long as they're good at their job, that they're going to be okay. And for, for the most part, they're probably right depending on what race they are, what gender they are, or what age they are, or where they come from. They're probably right. And so, when folks think about this change of law, they're like, I don't understand why it was needed, right, because they are operating in privilege. And so there's a whole lot of people in Michigan specifically before yesterday that would go to work and wonder is someone going to know I'm gay, if someone doesn't like that I'm trans, what could they do? And the fact is I could be the greatest anything in that job. If someone simply doesn't like or doesn't agree for whatever reason that I should have transitioned or I should be who I am, you can get fired. They can legally go, you're fired, because they could say it. There's really not much that could happen in Michigan. And that's what's shown when Amy Stevens was fired. after seven. She worked for them for, I think, seven or eight years and then transitioned. So she had a clear record of good success. They fired her simply because she was trans. And so it had nothing to do with her work ethic. And so for folks who are trying to live their dream, trying to become doctors and lawyers and uh, engineers or gardeners, whatever they want to do, the thought that something that they may or may not, can, they may not be able to control or who they love is the reason that they're going to be without economic stability, that's scary. Mm -hmm. So then people go into hiding. Also, there was lots of research that's shown over the last 50 years. Think about 50 years. We have came a long way Mm -hmm. with rights. Mm -hmm. But even in the last 50 years, people are still not coming out. And this was an economic report. LGBT people are still not coming out because they're still able to get fired. You can change every law in a state, in a county. All counties have, you can't, non-discrimination ordinances. It's not enough. We needed a federal law that says it that protects us because the last thing that we should worry about is getting fired because we love someone and want to build a relationship and a life with someone else that really has nothing to do with our job. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. Liliana Reyes program director at the Ruth Ellis center and director of Trans Sisters of Color here in Detroit. It was really great to hear from you today. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversation about the U.S. Supreme Court ruling on LGBTQ worker rights. We're going to talk next with Slate legal correspondent and senior editor, Dahlia Lithwick, who will help us understand what this means from a Supreme Court perspective. I also want to continue to hear from you. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. Delphine and Warren, Chuck and Franklin will get to you next. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to work those into the conversation. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Steven Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking about the monumental ruling from the U.S. Supreme Court yesterday that says that LGBTQ Americans deserve protection. Under the Civil Rights Act of 1964, just like other Americans, uh, a surprise decision given the makeup of the court. Uh, I think also a surprise given uh, all of the other things that uh, are going on right now in our in our country. It was a nice surprise. Uh, it's kind of pushback against some of the inequality that people are finally taking to the streets and saying. Uh, Enough is enough. about Joining us now to talk more about the court itself uh, and this ruling is Dahlia Lithwick. She writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. Dahlia, welcome back to Detroit Today. Yes, great to hear from you today. Uh, So uh, let's talk about this decision Uh, yesterday. I was surprised. I think lots of people were surprised, uh, not just by the outcome, but by the size of the majority on the court. Uh, I'd love to get your reaction to the idea that Neil Gorsuch, a very conservative justice, was the author of this opinion.
4: Yeah, that part was, I think, the surprise uh, for those of us who watched oral argument. And this was one of the first cases argued this term. It was argued way back uh, in in the Pleistocene era, era. yeah, in October (laughs) Um, And I think there were some hints at oral argument that Justice Gorsuch had more solicitude for the plaintiffs than one might have expected. He asked a couple of questions that suggested that what he eventually decided, which is that the word because of sex, in Title VII maybe should sweep in discrimination uh, based on uh, sexual preference or gender identity, but I I think that the overwhelming feeling coming out of oral argument was that the plaintiffs were probably going to lose in both cases, both involving um, the the two employees who are fired for being gay and the one transgender woman who was fired for being gay. So, it was a surprise, and I think I would go on to say Even if one believed that Chief Justice John Roberts, who has become the median voter and occasionally thrown in his weight with uh, the progressive judges, even if he was in play, I think the idea that you would get such a resounding and unequivocal ruling uh, that sweeps in both the Chief Justice and Gorsuch, that part was absolutely a
2: surprise. Yeah. Uh, Among the justices, uh, we we detect, I think, in the in the opinions here, a very long running argument about uh, how you how you should look at the words that are written either in the Constitution or in this case in in statutes. There are a lot of justices who say the words themselves are what matter, and they can only be interpreted to mean what they meant at the time that the authors wrote those words. Uh, Other justices say you have to take into account changes in society and changes in other parts of the law to be able to interpret those things properly. Uh, That is typically seen as a liberal conservative divide on, on the court here. Uh, you see it divide in another way. Put that in a, in a little context in terms of the bigger argument that the justices have been having forever, it seems, about the idea of uh, literal textualist interpretation and the idea that, uh, that things change over time.
4: That was, in my view, the most interesting part of uh, the dispute between the majority and the dissenters. There were two dissents. Justice Alito wrote for himself and Clarence Thomas. Brett Kavanaugh wrote a separate dissent. And you are quite right, Stephen. The fascinating thing is every one of those three laid claims to being the heir to Justice Scalia's notions of originalism and textualism. So I think that there's kind of a joke, at least post Heller, that was the guns case uh, uh, in 2008, where everyone's a textualist now. Uh, the only question is how you define that. And even the liberals, I think Elena Kagan has said, we're all textualists. And I think you're quite right to say there's such a, a, a divide here between Gorsuch, who says, look, I am an uncompromising textualist. And when I look at Title Seven of the Civil Rights Act that prohibits discrimination, quote, because of sex, that's has to sweep in sexual orientation and gender identity. And he uses an example, by the way, that Pam Carlin used, uh, who was arguing the case before him, that if uh, a man uh, is fired for uh, marrying a man and a woman is is allowed uh, a few days off for marrying a man, then clearly that's because of sex. The plain meaning, he says, of the words themselves, Get to that outcome. Hmm. And you're quite right that Justice Alito is like the drafters in 1964 never imagined uh, sweeping in uh, sexual preference or gender orientation. And he goes on to uh, provide a dictionary definition of sex at the time that goes on for pages and pages. (laughs) And in effect, I think you have a fight about whether the drafters intended this or the language itself independently forces this outcome. And it's really interesting because textualism is now split into these questions of what is the original public meaning of the words and what did the drafters intend? And it's almost like watching Antonin Scalia's ghost fighting with himself.
2: Wow, wow. Uh, I'm talking with Dahlia Lithwick who writes about the courts and the law for Slate and hosts the podcast Amicus. Uh, We're talking about yesterday's monumental decision by the U.S. Supreme Court to say that LGBTQ Americans uh, are deserving of protection. Uh, under the Civil Rights Act of 1964. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Tell us what your reaction is to that decision. Uh, Again, we want to especially hear from you if you are a member of the LGBTQ community and especially if you think you'll be directly affected by this decision. What does this mean For you. As always, the number on the phones is 313 577 1019. That's 313 577 1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and Twitter, put comments there. We'll try to work them in. Let's uh, start with uh, Chuck in Franklin. Chuck, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. And
5: it's uh, nice that you have uh, Dahlia Lithwick on. It's uh, great to hear her. She's always interesting. Yes. (laughs) As you know, Stephen, I'm a Trump loathing Republican who voted for him reluctantly in 2016. And part of the devil's bargain that I made at that time was on the basis of nominations of uh, federal judiciary. Mm -hmm. And when you began the program today, you mentioned that uh, the federal judiciary had had moved much more conservatively under Trump. And with regard to the Supreme Court, I just wanted to observe that um, yesterday's opinion in this case could easily have been duplicated with Justice Kennedy writing the opinion that uh, Justice Gorsuch wrote mm-hmm. and Justice Scalia writing the opinion that Justice Kavanaugh wrote. And, of course, those were the two replacements in reverse order. Right. Uh, Gorsuch replaced Scalia, uh, Kavanaugh replaced Kennedy. But those two opinions, I mean, Kavanaugh's opinion could have been a Scalia opinion, and 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 uh, Gorsuch's opinion could easily have, could have been a Kennedy. A, yeah. a Kennedy opinion, and then we're left with Justice Roberts now uh, moving over on this peculiar statutory interpretation issue, which was different from the um, from the marriage cases um, and Lawrence versus Texas. Um, my my question for Dahlia Lithwick is if she has any comment on that. But also, weren't there ten? separate um, U.S. Court of Appeals decisions on this case, um, the various cases that were consolidated that all went against the plaintiff.
2: Chuck, I again, always appreciate the the call and the questions uh, and and that insight. I hadn't thought of uh, the sort of one-to-one comparisons of the justices here and the opinions. Dalia, I'm really curious uh, what you think of that, but also his question about uh, how these cases fared at the lower courts.
4: Um, Yeah, I think that it is really interesting, and Chuck is so right to point out that the one almost incomprehensible piece of this puzzle is John Roberts, who wrote this scorcher of a dissent in Obergefell in the marriage equality cases, and then wordlessly signs on to uh, what looks like a Kennedy opinion from uh, Neil Gorsuch. Alito, in some ways, Uh, reads as though he's just cribbing from John Roberts, you know, even though it's, it's correct to say that this is a statutory and not a constitutional case. So I think some, somehow, uh, you can elide that what looks like a contradiction. Um, And I think it is certainly the case that uh, the Second Circuit uh, did feel that uh, sexual orientation discrimination on the basis of sex uh, was covered in Title VII. The Eleventh Circuit said uh, it was not. uh, That was that was the second um, uh, plaintiff in these two cases. So we did see uh, an absolute split between split. the circuit yeah. courses at courts. And that is when, uh, as you know, that's when the court really has to take these cases on.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, the, the Roberts opinion in, uh, in the marriage case, uh, literally said that the justices who were in the majority were just making it up, right? that uh, that there was no basis in in the Constitution for. It. I mean, as you point out, it was a very strong opinion, and he was I, I think pretty upset about uh, about what the justices did. i I too was a little confused by then him joining on to the Gorsuch opinion yesterday. and and of course, because of the way the court works, he would have assigned that opinion. Uh, uh, to, to, to Gorsuch, uh, it, it does seem like something of a reversal.
4: I, I think always with John Roberts, one has to think of him wearing two hats. And uh, I think this was implied in Chuck's question, too. Uh, there is the one doctrinal hat where he votes as, uh, you know, his long history as a Rehnquist clerk in the Reagan Justice Department uh, would tell him to go. And then there is the stewardship of the court that he sees himself as the chief justice who has to do, in addition to his one of nine votes in a case, has to do the business of preserving the court's integrity and legitimacy in the public eye and often, I think, when you see him defect from what he would do if he was just a justice, I'm thinking of the Affordable Care Act challenges where he twice threw in uh, with the liberal wing. I'm thinking of last year's census case when he threw in with the liberal wing. Sometimes when John Roberts defects from his own predilections or ideology, you can bet that he's thinking about this larger game board of the Supreme Court in the midst of Not one, but about seven, eight big cases this month, really determining the course of not just the future of the country, but the country's feelings about the court. And sometimes when he flips, we may see him do it once or twice again this term. Uh, It's not because it's what his heart wants. It's because he thinks the court needs him to do something to modulate his own
2: instincts. Yeah. Again, Chuck, thanks very much for the call and the question. Let's go to Delphine and Warren. Delphine, what's your question? Hi. Hi.
0: Um, I guess while I'm listening, I've divided this into two parts. One, I had read where a woman who was a teacher in a Catholic school was fired because they found out she was married to another woman. Mm-hmm. And to push this a step further— The church absolutely refuses to consider women for the priesthood. And how far can that go? Hmm. I mean, if you feel you have a calling from God to the priesthood and they complain about shortages, how is it they won't accept women?
2: Great question, Delphine. Uh, uh, Dahlia, I've only got about a minute left, but uh, address Delphine's questions here.
4: Delphine has put uh, her finger on the issue that is going to be the follow-on issue in this case. Justice Alito raises it in his dissent saying this is just a body blow to the church uh, that is going to be forced now to accommodate uh, gay and transgender workers in violation of their faith. Mm. Um, Justice Gorsuch, in his majority opinion, says all that is taken care of by other existing doctrine, the First Amendment, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. But I think that Delphine is exactly right, that the pushback we're going to get in the coming months to this decision will come from religious institutions that say they are going to see their own civil rights encroached, and if that sounds familiar, that was exactly the pushback we got after Obergefell, Mm -hmm. the marriage equality decision. Mm
2: Okay, Dahlia Whitlithwick of Slate and the podcast Amicus. Always great to have you here with us. you got a big week ahead. you probably got to rest up for that. More <laughs> opinions, more big opinions coming. Uh, but thanks very much for being with us here. Thanks for having me. All right, that's going to do it for us today. I'll be back tomorrow, and I hope you will too. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow you